So we talk about the future as if we really understand it, but we don't, do we? <laughs> but the Lord Jesus does, and that's very, very good. We've been speaking about his second coming. It's a reality. I believe it. You believe it. We're counting on it. I hope we're living in terms of it. In prior weeks, we spoke about the manner in which the Lord will indeed return. How will he come? And then we spoke even about the timing of the Lord's return. And I hope you found that helpful and uh, interesting. Have you ever thought about this question, however, with regard to the Lord's second coming? Why would he do it? Why is he even intending to come back? Folks, he came the first time. Enfleshed. He suffered, he died, he was scourged, he was mocked, he was rejected, even by his own. And we sent him back to his father, but this time scarred and bruised and wounded. So the question I ask is not an academic one. Why would he come back? After all, look how we treated him. But he is going to come back. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. But why? So that's our subject. And I can sum it up for you, I think, simply by giving you the two principal reasons for the Lord's second coming. It is these. He is going to come to judge and to deliver. I'd like you to listen to the words of the Apostle John. He's a person. He was a person just like you and I, but particularly called by God to receive magnificent visions of things to come. And then, under the inspiration of Almighty God, he recorded those words for us so we could get in on it. And I just want to open it up a little bit. Uh, Revelation chapter 19. Listen to what John said in verse 11. And I saw, you see, He heard for sure, but mainly he saw the vision. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey. Oh, no, you see, the the Lord made use of a donkey when he made his initial entry into Jerusalem uh, in conjunction with his first coming. Uh, That's when he came as the sacrificial lamb the next time will be as lion of judah and so there's a white horse associated with his coming so john said i saw this white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and you see by those descriptive terms i am persuaded aren't you it's speaking of none other than the lord jesus you see he who is who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness See, he judges and wages war. So that's where I came up with the notion that one of the reasons why the Lord will return is for judgment. As we go further on in the text, Revelation 19, verse 15, John says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Wow. All kinds of military armament involved in the battle of Armageddon under the leadership of the Antichrist. But the Lord needs not to make recourse to that kind of weaponry because with the mere sword, his words, 
He can destroy the nations. And he will rule them, it says, with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Does it distress you to know that your Abba Father, into whose lap we just figuratively speaking, crawled up to Does it distress you to know that that God of mercy and God of grace and God of comfort, that that Savior is also a God of wrath? I'm not saying I'm entirely comfortable with it all, but too bad. These are his attributes. You can't take the one you like and leave behind the ones you don't. God is indivisible. He's perfect in all of his perfections, one of which is to judge righteously and rather severely. And so we read about it. For instance, look further. Revelation 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Can you imagine that? I cannot. I mean, this is really something. And and so you see, John had to see this by God's doing. He said, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds, in this case, the ravenous birds, which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Did you know that there are two divinely ordained suppers in the future? Both happen to be mentioned in this same chapter, Revelation chapter 19. And here they are, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the second is the great supper of God. They're both mentioned in Revelation 19. Now, the first one, being at the first one is quite a blessing, but being at the second one, not so much. The first one, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is the consummation of the Lord's covenant marriage to his bride, us's. We are the bride of Christ. We're called that. I love that terminology. And Isaiah says, refers to Almighty God as your husband, your maker. And so in keeping with the various phases of Jewish marriage, it's a phased kind of a thing. The final and ultimate phase has to be this marriage supper. And those who are betrothed to Almighty God will not be missing it. You're getting an invitation. And the Lord will make sure you attend and you'll want to attend and we will be wrapped up in the literal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, our husband, our maker, we being the bride of Christ. That's a feast you want to be at. But the second is entirely different. That's not a good one. That's the time when the Lord will judge rather severely those who... In spite of the message of the great tribulation, have rebelled against Almighty God, taken on the mark of the beast, identified themselves not with the true Christ, but instead with the counterfeit parody of the true Christ, the Antichrist, and they will meet up at the time of the Lord's second coming with severe judgment characterized by the great supper of God. And so God has his angels summons the ravenous 
birds in mid heaven too. Look what it says, Revelation 19:18. Eat. To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Yeah, but God is not a flower child. He is a loving God and has done everything imaginable, even beyond, to save us from the outpouring of his wrath. But if we sinfully refuse his inexpressible gift of deliverance, salvation, pardon, forgiveness through the Lord Jesus who was sacrificed, then there is no choice but for this devouring judgment of God to befall us because he's holy and cannot grade on a curve. Commandments are in the Bible, not suggestions. God is not into situational ethics. He's into moral absolutes, not relative standards. And so those holy moral absolutes must be complied with, and nobody has. So he sent his only begotten son who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for us. And if we say thanks but no thanks then we're accountable for our own sin. I don't want to be. I don't have a plea. I don't know how to defend myself when I stand before Almighty God and have to give an account for the way in which I live. I have to say, I broke your laws. But then I could also say, but your son paid the penalty for me, and I can't wait to hear, ah, case dismissed. You, you see, see how it works? So here is this holy God who must judge sin, and so that judgment is one of the reasons explaining why the Lord Jesus, in fact, is you can be sure of it going to come again. But as I mentioned, he comes for a second purpose. It's not just to judge. It's also to deliver, to save. And this we can find out a bit more about as we uh, consult, again, the Olivet Discourse. Remember, uh, don't be um, put off by that vocabulary. It just means the explanation the Lord gave to his followers from the Mount of Olives. In Matthew 24 is what we're looking at. So take a look at verse 31. And uh, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. That's a shofar. And that's very much in keeping with Jewish tradition. You know, I'm so sorry to keep throwing that Jewish stuff in your face, but I just can't get away from it. It seems to be all over the Bible, my Gentile friends. And so the, the idea of being summoned together for an assembly by the blowing of a trumpet is a, very, um, is a very Jewish kind of a thing. And so in keeping with that context here, uh, the Lord will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together. Look, his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. Now, here's what's happening. It's the 70th week of Daniel. We spoke about it a long time ago. Uh, Daniel had a prophecy 
and it went, it covered the future for 70 weeks. This is the 70th week of Daniel, which is the context of Matthew 24, verse 31. It is, in fact, the time of the great tribulation, which we spoke about. And during the time of tribulation, did you know many are going to come to know the Lord? And I know for, for, for I suppose, a good number here, uh, that's kind of, news and it may be a little hard for you to swallow and i don't want you to swallow it if it's just not biblically palatable but some think at the rapture after the rapture there's no more possibility to be saved um, but but that can't possibly be true you you see because during this tribulation period do you recall the lord um, ordains recruits equips and sends out 144,000 evangelists Well, what are they doing evangelism for if there's no possibility of anyone being evangelized? So you have 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. You got, you got, you got 144,000 very talkative, very verbal, very aggressive, very passionate Jews. They're like 144,000 apostle Pauls. They're running around. They're talking about the Messiah and Many are saved, but the Antichrist is not pleased with all this. These who are saved, don't you see? They want to be sealed with the very Spirit of God, and so they refuse identity with the Antichrist. They refuse the mark of the beast. And what does he do? Unleashes persecution against the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly during the second half of this tribulation period, so that they're forced to flee. This persecution, they're running for their lives. Where? To the four winds of the earth. North, south, east, and west. They're all over the place. And then God has one of his angels blow the shofar. And it summons, these are the elect. These are the ones whom the Lord has enabled to, to respond to him by faith. And he calls them all together. And so there's not just judgment behind the Lord's second coming. It's also the gathering of his people. Well, uh, the Olivet Discourse tells us a whole lot more about the Lord coming to deliver those who are his. And so I want to call your attention to two more verses which are frequently, I think, I think, misinterpreted. You listen carefully to this because I really want you to correct me if I'm getting this Wrong. So here it is. Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41. Listen. Then there will be two men in the field. Why are there two men in the field? Well, because that kind of work was characteristic in that day of what men did. One will be taken and one will be left. And then there will be two women grinding at the mill. Why are they doing that? Because in that day, that is the customary work of women. And one will be taken and one will be left. So here's what I think is the wrong interpretation of this. And you, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, and I feel certain you will. And many people take this to be uh, an indication of, of the rapture of the church. You see, one is taken and the other is left behind. It surely looks like it would be that, but if that's the case, the whole logical, orderly chronology of the Olivet Discourse is thrown away. 
We have been moving past the rapture into the tribulation and to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chronologically, we are way past the rapture. So the rapture takes place way before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is at the end of the great tribulation period. And so this cannot possibly be a reference to the rapture for a lot of reasons. For one thing, the church isn't even in this period, which the Lord is referring to in the Olivet Discourse. The rapture is of the church. <laughs> the tribulation doesn't concern the church because the church is not there yet. So these verses in Matthew 24 cannot be a reference to the rapture. They don't fit the logical time frame uh, that we have seen as you go logically, systematically through the Olivet uh, Discourse. So what is going on here? Well, the rapture of believers, as I mentioned, has already taken place long before previous to the second coming. So let me mention this to you. Um, would I really cause you to stumble if I told you there are actually three comings of Christ? Yeah, well, you see, Charlie said that's right. So um, there are two of us. Um, so here's the deal. The first coming of the Lord Jesus, you're well aware of it, is when he came enfleshed. He came down to earth. He laid aside many of his divine privileges. And he came to suffer and to die in our place. That's the first coming of the Lord Jesus, and thank God for it. We would be without hope otherwise. The second coming of the Lord Jesus is actually the rapture. Now, he doesn't come at the rapture to earth as at the first coming because the scriptures that tell us about the rapture tell us the Lord comes down to meet us in the air. Catches us up. That's what the word rapture means. You see, because some of us are going to be reluctant to go. Though we be Christians, we're going to say, oh, yeah, I just bought a new house. <laughs> I mean it. And the Lord's going to catch us up and he's going to say, leave it behind. It's nothing. So we meet the Lord. And that's the second coming. So technically, the second coming, I'm taking quite a long walk here. Technically, the second coming is the third coming. So, you and I, Christians, that's our identity, that's our reality, this second coming, not that third. At the first coming, the Lord came to earth. At the third coming, the Lord came to earth. But at the second coming, we meet him in the air. So what we're reading about in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, in no wise could be a reference to the rapture. So then, what? Does it, in fact, mean? Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken. Well, if it doesn't mean he's taken in the rapture, what does it mean? Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. If it's not the rapture, what does it mean? Well, I think it means those who are taken are taken not into the rapture, which has already passed, they're taken at the end of the tribulation period. And when the Lord returns the third time for judgment, they are taken away into that judgment. 
One is taken into judgment, the other is left behind. And I want to tell you something, in this case, you want to be left behind. You don't want to be taken into judgment in this sense. And so the ones who are left, as illustrated in the verses we just read, are believers, people who've come to faith during the tribulation period, but who will be left out of God's judgment because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed them from the penalty of sin. So the people left, as illustrated in verses 40 and 41, one taken, one left, one taken, one left. The people who are left are believers left on earth. They missed the rapture. They're left on earth to do what? To get ready to populate the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, which is known, you can't see it here because we would be off the platform, which is known as the millennial reign of Christ. And that's the next key prophetic peak in the mountain range of God's future plan. The Lord Jesus comes surely to judge, but also deliver, to deliver those who have come to know him in the tribulation, to deliver and who have survived it, and even those who have been martyred in it, to deliver them out of ultimate judgment. And they have the astounding privilege of going right through the tribulation, not having to leave earth at all, and going right on into the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. One is taken up not to pass into the millennial reign of Christ. Oh, we'll talk a lot about it in the future, Lord willing. That's the time when the lion lies down with the lamb. That means the adversarial relationships, even in the natural order, will be reversed by Almighty. It's going to be very, how shall I put it, a very cool thing to be in the millennial reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the world's leader. He will rule and reign from the reconstructed temple in Jerusalem. And you ain't voting on it. He's going to do it. And so that's a very cool time. So these who are taken... They don't get to pass out of the tribulation and into the millennial reign. They're taken out of it so as to be judged by Almighty God. For they have rejected his offer of salvation. So, do you remember last week, which seems like a long time ago, uh, we were spoken about, speaking about a passage in the Olivet Discourse, and it, it, it said, just like uh, the days of Noah. Remember that one? And we were talking about how in Noah's day, you know, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. All good stuff, but distractions from ultimate realities. Remember we spoke about how they were, people were just caught up with the routine, normal things of everyday life so that they were distracted from ultimate realities. And so, and so the Lord was telling his followers, you know, when I come, it's going to be just like that. People are just going to be um, 
caught up with the routine of, you know, going to bed, getting up when the alarm goes off, throwing some water on your face, going off to a job you don't like, uh, making some money you don't think it's enough, uh, you know, coming home and, you know, paying the rent and so you have a place to sleep in so you can get up the next day and do the... I mean, you're just going to be caught up. And so the Lord is saying, when I come, here are the circumstances, he told them. It's going to be just like in the days of Noah. But there's something else about the days of Noah. Do you remember what happened in Noah's day? There was a flood judgment, which Noah, the preacher of righteousness, told people about for 120 years while he was building this floating box, the ark. And so in Noah's day, think about this, the flood judgment came and took away those who rejected God's message through Noah, but left Noah and his family on earth to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill it. Just as in the days of Noah, so will it be at the Lord's second coming. Same thing. He will leave behind those who are going to, excuse me, he will take away into judgment those who have rejected him and he will leave behind those who in the tribulation period have accepted him so they could wander right on into the millennial reign and populate the earth when the Lord returns and establishes his rulership from Jerusalem, you see. So that those passages are not a reference to the rapture at all. It, it, it can't be if you keep the chronology of the Olivet Discourse. So folks, during the tribulation, uh, let me simplify it. There will be a division of people during the tribulation. Some people are going to perish in uh, the judgment of a holy God. Those are the ones who are taken away. But others are going to be left. They will remain they are not judged and they enter into the kingdom of God on earth, the 1,000-year millennial reign. So to sum up, I think we now see why the Lord is going to return. The Lord Jesus will return to judge and to deliver. Why? Well, because he is both judge and savior. So he's going to come again, and that's what he's going to do, which leads to this question. If that's what he's going to do, what are we supposed to do until he does what he's going to do? Do we just sit around? Or do we, as some uh, recommend, actually, you know, in studying for this series... <laughs> I, I've gotten to read all kinds of stuff that makes you, how shall I put it, want to throw up. And so one of the things is the recommendation is that while we're waiting for all this to happen, we ought to be building um, underground shelters. Come on. You don't be digging. You don't sit around, and we don't, we don't assume a defensive posture and hide our head in the ground. And Come on. It's a bit more of an offensive posturing. We take ground. 
We declare truth. We function as salt and light while the time remains. We be living proof. Wasn't that good to see this wonderful family baptized? And I love what Roy... Do you promise to be living proof of a loving... That's a very legitimate thing to ask people who are publicly identifying with Christ. That's what we do. We be living proof of a loving and also holy God during this time, awaiting his return. And so what we'll do next week, unless... Not this coming of the Lord. I'm not worried about this one because something has to come before that one. Unless this one happens. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not going through that one. It's not going to happen. The father doesn't pour out his wrath on his kids. I'm one of them. So is you. If you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, I'm waiting for this, which could come at any, any, this, those things cannot come at any time. A bunch of stuff has to happen. You have to go through all of this, and this dude has to come on the surface, and you got seven years of this is not a good time, and then the Lord comes, and he said, no mistake about it, don't believe you, believe him if they say he's here and there, because this coming of the Son of God. And then he said, oh man, it's not going to be subtle. Boom! Lights and sound and atmospheric cataclysm and lights and darkness and... You're not going to have to say, did he come, did he come? At the end of the tribulation, they're going to be looking for a deliverer. The deliverer is going to make it clear. But that's that all has to happen. But before the rapture, you know what has to happen? Nada. Nothing. It's all been taken care of. The next key peak in God's prophetic mountain range is this, and we ought to be ready. Because he comes unannounced like a thief in the... So we want to figure out what should we be doing before he comes at the rapture. And if it doesn't happen before next week on Wednesday night, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, I read ahead. I found out what we're supposed to be doing. And it's, it's good. It's good stuff. It's a privilege. And as I say, Lord willing, we'll tell you about it next week. Will you accept my apology if you're visiting with us and are not a Christian? So much of what I've said does not apply to you. I am so sorry. You don't have a good future. There is nothing really good to look forward to. And probably your present ain't that hot either. So to you, I apologize, but I thank you for coming and getting an idea as you look into our experience with the Lord Jesus Christ of what it could be like for you. And I think one of the greatest mysteries of the universe is why would you persist in being in misery? When the Bible says if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I have a father. He knows my name. Oh, my goodness. That is unbelievable. Think about it. I mean, I have a senator, and he doesn't have a clue about my existence. (laughs) 
But I got a heavenly father who knows my name. Ho! And you don't get excited. So I'll close this in prayer because that's what we do. And then uh, if you want to stick around, I would love to talk to you about knowing the Lord Jesus in a personal way. Uh, About accepting him. You know, here's another mystery. He's just not going to push his way into your life. I, I I wish he would. But it's just not his style. He's just too loving. He's just too gracious. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to constrain you and me by his love <laughs> to draw near to him. Maybe he's doing that in the lives of some right now. I don't know. He has enormous capacities to convert, to change a soul. And if that process is happening to you, even as we sit here, I really wish you would stick You know, those people who got baptized and who unashamedly, even without a word, declare they belong to Jesus, they got something. And you could have it. (laughs) It's a gift. And that's probably why you're fighting it. Because everything you know of is, I do this, you do that. I earn this, you... Yeah, but see, this, this doesn't play by those rules. This is Almighty God saying, you don't have anything to offer me. You have sinned. But I'll have you anyway. Because the payment, the debt incurred by you for sin has been paid in full if you care to accept it by the Lord Jesus. Don't make this a religious thing. This is a personal, it's about connection. If you're not connected to your creator through the Lord Jesus Christ, you're disconnected and that explains why you're miserable. So if you wandered in here tonight in some vague hope that maybe you'll find something you're wrong it isn't a something it's a someone and I would love to chat with you as we take leave of one another before you go home about the Lord Jesus Christ father we bow before you not in fear and intimidation but in thanksgiving and reverence and respect We surely respect your far higher position, infinitely higher. We surely respect that you are creator of the universe, therefore having no end nor beginning. And we surely respect that you are untainted, uncorrupted, undefiled by the very sin which characterizes us because you are holy. This makes you much different than us, and yet you became us so that we could have a mediator we could relate to, a mediator who could be the perfect sin sacrifice, living as a human, except without sin. These are overwhelming truths which captivate us and set us free. So in the power of your Holy Spirit, he is also you. In the power of your Holy Spirit, would you go through this place and mess up? the one or the two, who's too comfortable in being disconnected from you. And would you stir that person up to be concerned about his or her own sin? 
and the inevitability of judgment and the means by which he or she can be in right standing with you. In other words, Lord Jesus, would you convert some souls tonight? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us from the unbridled and justifiable outpouring of your wrath. What we as Christ ones look forward to is bliss, bliss, eternal bliss. We look forward to your perhaps soon coming, Lord Jesus, and until then, help us to be busy all the more in doing that which you want us to do. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.